He says, they are going to sing. So, <laughs> and I certainly don't intend to sing, so I don't quite know what the significance of the title was. Um, Stuart Onan um, has written in the last handful of years, and I mean a very small handful, three very distinguished novels, one of which I am now enjoying called The Speed Queen. Um, and I understand, although I don't know this directly from Persick's, I hear this by hearsay, that there was a very fine review of his, his most recent novel uh, entitled A World Away, which is available um, in the lobby there for your purchase following um, this afternoon's presentation. I understand a very excellent review appeared in what the New York Times this morning, the New York Times, so you'll, you'll want to see that particular review. Um, he is what I would call an, a writer of emerging distinction. A writer of established distinction is Sue Grafton. Whenever I think of Sue and her achievement, which is not inconsiderable, I have to recall my childhood when, as an innocent child, I learned the alphabet, quite unaware of its homicidal implications. <laughs> And I think the very worst that can be said about her is that she has tainted the alphabet forever. And perhaps the best that can be said is that she's probably chosen the cleverest way a writer ever chose to get a multi-book contract. <laughs> because of course now she's faded to go to the end of the alphabet. Um, the first virtue of an introducer is to be brief, and, and so I will conclude with that because I know that the format will be one where we will get an opportunity to meet both our emerging talent and our established talent um, more intimately. So with that as an introduction, I present to you um, our two authors. Y'all can hear us out there. Can anyone not hear us? Cork, honey, can you hear me? Okay. Uh, in the spring of 1997, I read a book called The Speed Queen because of a review in either the LA Times, I think it was the LA Times book review section. And I read this book, which was one of the most original I can have ever read in my life. And in the Summer, uh, September of 1997, I wrote a letter to the author, which I would like to read to you. September 26, 1997. Dear Stuart Onan, <laughs> thusly, thusly, this is a fan letter. Sometime this spring, I read a review of the Speed Queen, probably in the LA Times or the New York Times, I forget which. I went out and bought a copy, liked it so much, I went back and bought five or six more copies that I sent out to everyone I knew. I have a house in Kentucky where I'm currently staying. Two days ago, I was talking to my sister-in-law in California and realized she'd never read this book. I went out and bought her a copy. While I was standing in the post office line waiting to mail it, I started reading it again. I got so jealous that she was getting to read it for the first time that I went next door to the bookstore and bought five or six more copies. <laughs> this is all good advice for everybody. <laughs> So now I get to read it for the first time all over again. Last night at the same bookstore, I bought the paperback of Snow Angels, which I'm hoping is as good. If not, it doesn't matter. I'll just keep reading The Speed Queen with perfect contentment. <laughs> the conceit is ingenious, and the book is beautifully executed. I wish I had written it instead of you. I hope you'll be a good boy, mind your manners, and write back. Sometimes my fan mail sits around at the publisher so long my readers think I'm rude. I trust your new book is going well, whatever it may be, sincerely, Sue Grafton. He was a good boy, and he did mind his manners, and he wrote to me. And we've been corresponding since last September. So when I persuaded him to come out for this conference, I thought what would be interesting for you is to hear some of what our dialogue has been between the two of us. Uh, so I went back through his letters and marked some passages that were of interest to me, things I wanted to hear him say more about. 
and I marked some that I thought might be of interest to you. We're going to try to allow you as little time to ask questions if we are able to do that. Now, in case you have not read The Speed Queen, I would like to tell you a tiny bit about it. The setup is as follows. Told from the point of view of a woman who is on death row, hours from execution, Stephen King has bought the rights to her story, which is about this terrible murder she and a woman named Natalie and a fellow named Lamont have committed that has brought her to this sorry pass in life. And she, he has given her 50 questions that if she can answer before she's executed, will give her enough money for her infant son, Ganey, to get by in the world. So she is taping responses to Stephen King's questions. And she doesn't tell you what the question is. She launches in with this long, rambling tale. Uh, little by little, you piece together this crime that is chilling because it isn't told in any kind of sequence. You just have to take bits and pieces. This novel blew me away. So my first question for and, yes, And it's a comedy. It is. It is. It is. It is. Okay. It, it, it's a satire. It's not, it's not straight at all. No. So my first question is, how did you think of that? How did you think of that? Well, I, uh, John Gardner has been a big influence on my writing. And in his Art of Fiction, he talks about a form called the Gallows Broadside, which is a medieval form in which the condemned prisoner tells their life story to a scribe of the court. And I knew that I was going to tell about this one on death row, but she had to tell it to somebody. And I thought, in America, who is the official scribe of the court? And uh, in the past, it was, of course, Truman Capote with in cold blood, but nowadays it's definitely Stephen King, because he can, he's sort of a confessor and judge figure, because he knows our worst, worst secrets and replays them to us. So Marjorie naturally would trust him with her story. So once I got King as the guy who's sort of asking the questions, uh, the rest was very, very easy, because then it became, how does Stephen King write a book? What does he think is important for the reader to know, and in what order? So in that way, the satire of how a King novel is put together became the framework for how I was going to put together this particular book. Um, and the framework works because it's a natural form, and King's a very good writer structurally, I think. Uh, and it works because then I can have fun with that form and poke fun at it. So I can ask questions like, well, what was in your refrigerator? Because to Stephen King, that's very important, you know, these little, little <laughs> brand names. And um, uh, which I don't think is terribly important when the subject matter is killing a whole bunch of people. Uh, just while we're on the subject, I'm going to read you a passage from Speed Queen because I want you to understand the issue of voice. Now, I don't even know how to talk about voice, but this is voice. You know, when the gymnast does a vault and they stick it, you know, there's not the little sidestep. This is what this tiny passage does. This is the answer to question number six. We don't know what the question is. No, I hadn't done that many drugs before Lamont. I was pretty conservative. I smoked weed all through high school, but everybody does that. Drank beer, a little vodka, just on weekends. It was pretty tame. I used to do downs when I could get them. Percodan, Percocet, bootleg Quaaludes. Uh, Percocet and gin used to be my favorite. I would watch TV for hours that way. Saturdays, we'd go over to Mary Alice Tompkins' house and watch the Sooners destroy somebody. By halftime, it didn't even matter, but that was just the fun stuff kids do. <laughs> I did a little acid, five or ten trips in all. It was mostly speed, I think. You'd sweat something terrible, and your fingers would go cold. You'd drop before homeroom and cut the rest of the day, and when you got home, you'd still be going, and you'd have to force yourself to eat. I remember spreading my food around on my plate to make it look like I did. I'm sure my mom thought I was anorexic. Getting up the next day was always tough. So no, not really. I was pretty straight. <laughs> How did you find Marjorie's voice? Because you don't look like a girl on uppers or downers to me. Um, I'd been doing research for uh, the novel before that, The Names of the Dead, which is this large, very serious Vietnam book, a tragedy. Uh, about memory, and uh, I've been reading a lot of oral histories, and I read one particular oral history um, about veterans who'd been to jail for violent crime, and that's a very tiny, tiny percentage of Vietnam veterans. I mean, don't let me give you a false impression about the Vietnam vets, 
But there was this one guy in the book who talked like this. And they were asking him about what his crimes were. And he was describing this, this sort of kidnapping of this man and holding a gun to this man's head. And he was describing it absolutely gleefully. Now, unapologetically, he was like, yeah, you should have been there, man. You should have seen the guy. He was practically crying. And he was having a great time saying this. And then at some point, he realized that this was not a good thing to actually say. Uh, and so he became very contrite. And he said, you know, but I'm a different guy now. And I look back and I think, you know, that was just a terrible, terrible thing to do. But you should have been there, man. <laughs> it was, like, so amazing. And then he went on in minute detail about you know, how much fun he had terrorizing this poor man. Um, and I thought, that's a really interesting thing, the way that we talk about what we've done in our life and how we sometimes apologize for it and sometimes don't. And then also that big, I think, American idea that we can turn into another person. We can change. We can leave that person we were behind and become better and more generous um, and truer. Um, so I just decided to follow both the voice and the theme there. Did you catch the voice first time out, or did you fumble around at first before you heard her? It, it took me a little while to get into it. I, I did uh, maybe 10, 15 false starts on it, mostly because I was, I was grappling with writing a female voice in the first person. And I'd written first-person females before, but this one had to be, as you say, absolutely dead on, especially if it was going to be an entire novel. I mean, I've done short stories in first-persons of all different kinds of folks. But I knew I had to carry the whole book this way. So the voice had to be interesting. And that, that uh, passage you read is typical in that the voice is very sprung. There are all these little surprises in it, mm -hmm. little, little sharp turns. A, a line goes on like this, and usually in straight fiction, it's a straight tragedy or drama, a line goes like this, and it reaches the next line, and it goes like that, and it goes like that, and there's great ligature between the lines. I wanted the lines to go like this, and suddenly you turn or go around corners, so the reader would have to go, what? Now, what exactly did she say, and is she lying? Is she telling the truth? So I read uh, Laurie Moore, who's a very fine short story writer, who is great at writing what I call surprise sentences. They're sentences that the first half and the back half don't seem to match up somehow, and they intrigue the reader. And they make the reader first want to read on to figure out how those two halves fit together, and second, go deeper into character. Uh, just to give you a little bit of background on this man, in 1988, he won the Ascent, Ascent Fiction Prize. In 1989, the Columbia this, Fiction Award. This is, this is like turning into a plug here. I know. It's a smart priest. <laughs> it's like an infomercial. In 1991-92, he was the Pushcart Prize Special Mention, a finalist in the 1993 Flannery O'Connor Award for Short Fiction. In 1993, the Drew Hines Prize for Literature. 1993, he won the Pirates Alley William Faulkner Prize for the novel. 1994, the Barnes & Noble Discovery Series. 1995, the McDowell Fellow. 1995, a Hardware Advocate Holiday Fiction Contest winner. 1995, ALA Notable Book of the Year for Snow Angels. 1996, he was named Granta's 20 Best Young American Novelist. All 20. <laughs> 19, working hard. 96, he won the Oklahoma Book Award for Names of the Dead. And in 1996, he was Pushcart Prize nominee, uh, nominated by Joyce Carol Oates. In a letter, to me, dated December 16, 1997, he said, One of my strengths as a conference participant is that that's how I started my career as a writer. I was 25 and working as an aerospace engineer on Long Island with no background whatsoever in English and I took my measly little stories to the Southampton Conference. Would you tell us the rest of this story? Um, it, was, it was a big conference that year, probably about 100 people. Uh, Russell Banks uh, was the big fiction guy that year. And of course, we all wanted to impress you know, the big cheese. So everyone got something like a half an hour conference with Russell Banks to talk about you know, those stories that you'd given him know, months before, and that you prayed that he would read very closely and see that you had the genius to become a major American literary figure. And uh, so everything was sort of leading right to that conference. You know, you're just biding time until you could sit down with the great man, and he would let you know whether you had the goods or not. Yeah. So 
I sort of girded myself for the conference, and I brought a little sort of handheld tape recorder like that so I could hear all the wonderful things that he was going to say to me about these stories, which were pretty good stories. They'd been published, they'd won some prizes, and I thought, you know, it was all right. So I sat down with Russell Banks, and he talked to me about tennis for about <laughs> the first 10 minutes. And I thought, well, this is a stall tactic. So I said, you know, what did you think about the stories? And he said, you really want to be a writer? And I said, yeah. And he said, what do you do for a living? And I said, well, I'm an aerospace engineer. Are you married? He said, yeah. And he said, he said do you have kids? And I said, yeah. He said, well, don't quit your day job. <laughs> Just like that. Don't quit your day job. And I was, of course, I was crushed. You know, I, I was a bug. And I was like, oh, god damn. And I said, well, you know, would going to an MFA program help me at all? And he goes, you got kids, right? <laughs> and he could sell one, he thought. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly, or at least lease. Um, and so finally, he said, well, don't get discouraged. Just keep working. You know, you were working before. Just keep working. And then he said to me the one thing that I really held on to from that little conference there, and it was the one sort of little glimmer of hope that he gave me. And he said, the ones that make it in this business are the ones who just keep trying. And I said, okay, you know, that's hopeful. You know, that's a positive thing that he said. You know, that's, that's the quotable part of the review. I'll keep that. Um, and I said, well, I'll give myself 10 years, 10 years to do it. And uh, that was 1986, I think it was. And uh, by 96, I published four books. And, you know, I'd, I'd, wrote, I'd write to Banks, you know, every time I published something. And he never wrote back. Never wrote back. It's like, who is that guy? But that's, that's true. It's just determination, hard work. You don't have to have the talent of a Mozart or a Mendelssohn at 12 years old. You, know, you can start at any time of life um, from absolute standing start, I think. Um, the secret, I think, is reading. You know, I've just loved reading my entire life. I read voraciously. Um, and I write books that I would want to read. Did you have a mentor, per se, one person that you well, I'd say I'd say John Gardner, though he was dead by that time. Uh, he'd written two books, one, The Art of Fiction, and the second, On Becoming a Novelist, which I noticed on your shelves in your yes, office sir. Yes, sir. there. <laughs> and um, I think he gave me really great advice um, on just what it was to be a writer, on, on how to approach fiction and character and being open to where the story's going to take you. Um, I've, I've since tried to use that book with students, and they think he's high-handed and pretentious and a <laughs> jerk. Um, but at the time that, that, that I was underneath his spell, I was willing to take his advice because I'd read his books. I knew he was a good writer. He tried all sorts of different forms. He was daring. He wasn't afraid to make huge mistakes. Um, and he worked very, very hard. And I thought, well, that's the kind of writer that I want to be. And I'm willing to listen to his advice because what the hell do I know? I'm a guy in my basement you know, with my day job. Um, and I still sort of feel like that. You know? yeah. <laughs> I was going to ask you how long it took you to support yourself as a writer. What, what day is today? <laughs> Today's Sunday, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I just, I just quit teaching last month. Um, and I, I may end up going back to teaching or just doing something else. So even with all the awards and the publications, the struggle is not over. Oh, heck no. Yeah. <laughs> no. No, because I always try to do something different and daring, and usually things that agents and editors look at and go, what the hell is this? You know, like the next book is in the second person, you know, and they're like, I don't, I don't think I've ever seen a book in the second person. <laughs> I'm like, well, you know, there's Bright Lights, Big City. Okay. <laughs> On November 18, 1997, in one of the letters, uh, he began to talk about the novel, The Names of the Dead, which is another I've read about Vietnam. And he says the following, I wasn't really planning to write about Larry. I was going to write a small and quiet love story between his father, the doctor, and Mrs. Railsbeck. What happened was, one day I was walk working on one of the doctor's sections and wrote, his son was a Vietnam veteran, and things had been difficult between them. The next day, when I was going over the pages, I saw that line and said, what exactly are you saying? 
So to introduce myself to Larry, I decided to write a short story about him. So I wrote and wrote, and 100 pages later, I was still pulling out stuff on him. Now, this was clearly a point at which you reached a crossroads in the work itself. How did you decide that it was worthwhile to follow that? I mean, how did you have the courage to take that path? And what if you'd gotten to the end of it and it had been a dead end? Well, that, that was actually the, the path of least resistance because stuff just kept coming out of the character. And, and when it's like hitting a gusher, you know, I mean, you're just lucky. You know, I just lucked onto it. If I had gone back to the doctor's story, I think it would have dried up because it just wasn't coming that naturally. But with Larry, it was page after page after page, so you knew that you were onto something. You felt it. There was an excitement and even a, a speed or a pace to the writing that I hadn't felt before. So it felt absolutely right to go after it. It was, it was the easy way, I, I, I think one of the questions that I get occasionally from people at conferences is, what do you do if you have a character that takes over? Do you follow that line? Do you pull the character back to fit into the framework of the story you have in mind? I tend to be a puller backer. <laughs> well, but it, in your area, you, you already have kindred. Yes. You yes. Know? And, and so your character is firmly established. The heart of the book for you is that character and the story that she's in. For me, writing literary fiction, it's always the character. Yeah. And to hell with the action, you know. I'll slow things down to a crawl, you know, if I have to, because I'm in service there of the character and their life, rather than what event is going to occur next or what plot point I've got to touch. Yeah. So yeah. you don't outline in any detail. Occasionally I do, but it's rare. Um, and that outline always gets chucked out anyway. I mean, the the original idea for the book usually leads you to something else. I mean, like Larry, you just stumble upon Larry. Or the Vietnam book leading to Marjorie's voice. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. I would have never thought to sit down and write about Marjorie, sort of just on my own. But things nudge you in a direction where you see that possibility, and then you just got to go with it. One of the things I learned when I was writing J.S. for Judgment, by the time I got to that book, I was getting very tense and very tired, and I felt very stressed out. And I ended up, I found a therapist down in Los Angeles met with him once and did phone therapy for three months and in the course of it he taught me the difference between ego and shadow so now and i'll try to tell you a little bit about that i consider that my books are shadow written i learned it with jay and i've done it that way ever since i keep a journal for every book that i write and the journal is like a long letter i write to myself about the work in progress so I log in every day and I talk about where I am in the book. I'll talk about the purpose of the scene. I'll talk about where I think it fits. And sometimes if lines of dialogue occur to me, I lay them into the journal. If I do a piece of research, I lay it into the journal. Now, now do you do you talk, does your shadow talk to you in the, in the second person? What you need to do is this. What no. you need to do is that, or is it what we need to do? Yeah. Well, a lot of it, I think left brain and ego are very similar in my definition. Left brain is verbal and literary. Left brain is your editor. Left brain is your critic. Left brain helps you organize material. Right brain is nonverbal and spatial. And, and she, I think of her as she, she speaks to me in these short bursts. Uh, and in fact, I, she is with you always. I mean, when you meet someone and that little voice says, ick, that's shadow. <laughs> it, because shadow isn't worried about looking good. Ego wants to look good. Ego is going, now come on, she's probably a nice lady. Shadow doesn't care for nice ladies. She doesn't like the woman. Uh, shadow, if you're working and Shadow knows that you have made a mistake, oh my God, very quick to tell you. Uh, just a brief story about that. I was gone on tour this spring and in my journal there's a gap from April 15th till June 3rd. And I got back and I had 136 single-spaced pages of my journal and four chapters of the book. And so I was reading through, hoping against hope the book was still working for me. And Ego was going, this is not bad, Grafton, you're doing pretty good here. And Shadow said to me, you know, <laughs> yes. She said, well, what about that one tiny false note? <laughs> and I went, I don't want to talk about any tiny false note. And she just kept raising her hand. She tried to be kind of nice about it, but, you know, there was that tiny false note. 
So I thought, all right. So I went back and looked at that, and the thing started to unravel like the back of a sweater. And it scared me bad. Ego doesn't like this. Ego wants to be on schedule. Ego wants to be perfect and do it right and get lots of praise and attention. But Shadow doesn't care about that. She wants the book to be what it needs to be. And so I just had to go with that. And, and the beauty of Shadow is that after she tells you about the one tiny false note, she'll tell you what the right one is. So we're, it is somewhat the same process, I think, although you think of it differently. You're pursuing character, which has to come out of your id or your unconscious. I'm not quite sure where it finally comes out of, maybe observation of the world. I try to write about people that are very different from me. I mean, obviously, I'm not a you know, female mass murderer. Um, I'm not a Vietnam veteran. I, I wasn't alive in 1943. So I, I try to tap into what other people are and how they get through their lives. I get very interested in people. I, I want to follow people home and see how they live, you know, what they do to get through the days and what their, their real desires are. I mean, finally, when you're writing character, you've got to cleave to their true and deepest desires um, and see how they pursue them. And anything that doesn't have to do with those desires gets cut. And if that means the storyline, then that's fine. One of my theories is that I was thinking about this this morning. Really, the only thing I think about is writing. And as I said to him, the rest is filler. For me, all the social yada, 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 I, really, I just make my mouth move. I don't care at all. Um, I was thinking about shadow as a sort of sonar or radar system. And I thought, what if ego and the rest of us is way up here on the surface? And the book is like a looming wreck on the bottom of the ocean. And we float over the top, send, sending down this ping and listening to the return. And gradually in the process, we begin to sense the shape of the ship down below. That requires a certain quiet on our part. And, and it is true that as we travel over the surface and begin to sense this vague form down below, sometimes it is not the wreck of our dreams, the salvage that'll make us rich and famous. Sometimes it's a boot, or sometimes it's a rock or a fish, a school of fish. But for me, the process of writing is getting in touch with that material down there and sensing the shape of it. So I always say to myself, you don't write the book, the book writes you. I don't tell the book what to do, the book tells me what it intends to do. And my job is to discover its texture and its shape and its form. That's, that's true, and, and what I do, it's whose story yeah. finally is this, and, and are all these people equally important, especially, especially if I'm doing an ensemble book where I have six or seven or eight or ten voices coming at me, and usually that means it's time to spread out and let everyone have a shot, because everyone's story is important. You said in that same letter, as usual, a character presented himself and drew me into a situation where I wanted to know more figure out how he became the person he was. I figured as long as I stayed true to the character, I'd be okay. What does it mean to be true to the character, and how do you know the false moments from the true? Um, it's, it's a very gradual process. Um, little gestures, the things that they do, how they treat other family members, um, what they tend to do in circumstances of stress, choices that they make. Their life choices turn out to be your narrative choices. It's almost like method acting. I mean, you have to get into that character and wear the mask of their face and their past and their history. And I think all, all great literary writing is the story of how I became the person that I am today. Because we're always trying to explain ourselves. And that's what I think we as readers are deeply interested in, to find out, you know, how is your life different and the same from mine? In the same letter, with reference to the names of the dead, you wrote, so much fun, I was dying to ask him some of these things. I never knew if my letters would be <laughs> quoted here. So. <laughs> I didn't do all the quotes. Uh, so despite everything I wrote, I think I wrote a decent book. He's talking about names of the dead. Trouble is, no one cares about the war anymore except Beth. This one guy I correspond with now, he always says it's the best book he's ever read on Vietnam, and I say, that's great, David, but no one cares. <laughs> and he says, hey, welcome to that world. How do you reconcile the desire to write a particular book with the question of what is commercial and what will attract the reader? 
you can't. I mean, you try to stay true to the character. And if the character happens to be, to wander into a sort of commercial zone, then fine. But if not, not. Um, nobody wanted the Vietnam book. My agent was like, that's poison. Why the hell are you writing it? I was like, this guy's fascinating to me. It's important. You know, this is a really important, deep character that I care a lot about. And she was like, oh, it's just, you know, I, I don't want this. We don't want to publish this as your second novel. And I was like, I don't care. You know. Um, but did you have a deal for that book before you wrote it, or did you just persist? No. And once it was written, then it found a place in the world, clearly. Yeah, it found a place because they liked Snow Angels, the first book. They liked that a lot, so they figured they'd just take this. But it was sort of a lame duck going out there because they, they thought that no one was interested in Vietnam. Um, I would disagree with that, but you know they, they didn't try to sell the book. But no, it doesn't really matter. Finally, the integrity of the book is what counts, and finding the reader for it, that reader's not going to be storming into Barnes and Noble saying, "Oh, give me the new Tom Clancy and the Stuart Onan." You know, they're not going to do that. <laughs> it is the person that is wandering the stacks at the local public library who takes chances, who stumbles across this book and picks it up and looks at it and starts to read part of it, and then falls into it, and the book becomes important says something important to them rather than being just sort of a, a pastime. Um, and that's true of most of the books. I don't know about Speed Queen. Speed Queen is just a, a psychotic book. And, it's just, <laughs> and sometimes I mean, you, you dive down into that wreck and you pull up things that you sort of want to disown, that you say, this stuff is really sick and it's not really from me. It's just part oh, of the, no, the craziness see, out there. That shadow, that shadow, that's why that work works so well, because it connects up with the rest of it. It says a level of our really sick stuff. I don't know if that's shadow. <laughs> um, that's psycho. <laughs> um, I mean, the next book has just got the most horrible, god-awful things in it that you, you're writing them and you're like, I really don't want to write this. But, you know, to the remain... The devil made him do yeah, it, Yeah, right? exactly. But to remain true to the character and, and the, the logic of the book, you have to follow through there. Uh, no matter how awful and obscene it may seem. You said on April 23rd, I write <laughs> short stories all the time. That's how I paid my dues coming up through the little literary magazines, trying out different effects on that small canvas. Love to mess with POV, language backwards or cut structure, really anything that seems to fit. It's a lyric form, and I'm drawn to that as well as the long haul of the novel. How do you, if you have an idea, how do you figure out if it's part of a short story or part of another book that's coming down the pike? How much juice is in the character? Uh, uh, Larry obviously had a lot of juice, a lot of things going on in his life, both in the, in the past and in the present. So I knew he needed some room there, and I gave him 500 pages of just his point of view. Uh, whereas in Snow Angels, I've got about 25 characters jammed into, finally, what was a 200-page manuscript, because I knew I just had the touch on their lives here and there. But usually a, a short story or one chapter will let you know how much juice a character has. You said, I know that tendency to spread out or to conceive only book-length projects, because we were talking about the fact that I've had eight short story ideas in my life, and I wrote them all, and now I don't have any more ideas. Uh, to me, a short story idea is like a little one-line joke. It's like a, a little punch. And I can look at them and I know this, isn't, this is in itself a short story. It isn't going to lead to anything else. And the ones, the mystery short stories that I framed for Kenzie Milholm were the toughest things I ever wrote because that canvas is so tiny. And what you're trying to do is work with the mechanism of the mystery, which is very complex and very challenging and very intellectual, and you got to compress it all, fooling the reader with very limited number of characters. But I find that now, if I have an idea, I tend to, I've got 12 books to write, and I, that's important to me, so I figure I'll do a host of short stories later. But uh, I tend to prefer the long haul myself. That just feels better to me. Our readers are really happy about that, too. <laughs> But it just, it just depends on, on what presents itself. Sometimes it's a screenplay, sometimes it's a poem. Um, whatever it calls for, whatever treatment it calls for. I mean, I, I don't stick with one point of view from book to book to book. I mean, it's been, I think, first, third, third subjective, deep, you know, heavy, heavy subjective. Um, the third book's a first-person, unreliable narrator. Uh, the new one is sort of an ensemble, multi-third-person subjective. The next one's a second-person um, I've written short stories in the first person plural, um, depending on, you know, what it calls for. 
Who is your guess about yourself that you'll keep moving around? Do you expect to find a form that will really make you happy and just settle in there, or are you going to keep? No, I, I think it's, it's the subject material that, that calls for something different. That's one thing that Gardner always talks about in The Art of Fiction is learning to use all the different tools, the technical tools of writing, so that when a difficult project presents itself, you have all these different choices of how to deal with the material. Like uh, A Prayer for the Dying, the book coming out next year, presented itself, I couldn't see how to get into this guy's life. It's a, a man who slowly goes mad, trying to keep his small town together. He's the sheriff and the pastor for the town. A very good man, but there's a diphtheria epidemic coming on, and he has to lay down the law. And I said, how do I show how this guy's unraveling? And I just sort of stumbled across the second person when I was writing a short story, and I thought, that's a really interesting effect. Because the second person sort of accuses the character, you do this, and you do that, and you do the other thing as well as accusing the reader at the same time. So it turns like that. So I saw that this was the way to, to work with this guy. And I sat down to write, and about 20 pages later, I was off on the chase. But I stumbled around for six months trying to figure out, how do I get into this? So usually some sort of technical cue will let you into your material in a way that, that really raises the stakes, gives the book the lift that it needs, I think. Like Speed Queen in third person can't be done. Right. Right. How do you, and I, I think maybe I'll ask you this from your position as a teacher, because I know you do, do a lot of teaching. Often I'm asked about the issue of when do you know a manuscript is ready to go out? How do you know when a book needs one more draft, or when it's time to lay it down and move on to the next project? When my readers tell me. Um, I have people that I met at the Southampton Conference back in 86 who I still send my manuscripts to. And they've read thousands of pages of mine. They know when I'm just sliding, when I'm faking it. Um, they know when I'm pushing a little too hard or reaching a little too hard with the language. Um, and they'll tell me. They won't be afraid. They just say, look, Stuart, now chapter six does not work. I do not believe it at all. And uh, I'll listen to them. You know, I'll grumble for a few days and say, yeah, I don't understand a goddamn thing. Um, but then I'll go back to the desk and I'll hammer it um, with their with their reading in mind. I've got four or five readers, and I sort of put all those into it and say, well, they're right. Um, so I don't rely entirely on myself for that. On your own intuition. No, no, I, I couldn't, I don't think. And then it goes to the editor, and the editor has something else to say about it, but I'll just go, what the hell do you know? <laughs> um, Have you had a book that you just couldn't take to the place it needed to go, that you had to set aside for some period of time? Mm. No, I don't think so. I and mean, I found my way to the end of most of these books, or deep enough in. Uh, I wrote a book two years ago about an invasion of Cuba, an American invasion of Cuba in 1999. Um, that I wanted to do a certain thing, yeah. And I wanted to, to do a certain thing and get to a certain depth. And after I'd finished the book, I realized that um, I'd fallen short of that goal. Um, sometimes that happens. You have an ideal book in your head and then you try to get it down on paper, and sometimes sometimes you get it, sometimes you get more than you thought you were going to get. Like Speed Clean, I think I got more than I thought I was going to get, or Names of the Dead. But occasionally you just come up a little bit short. That's nothing to be ashamed of, I don't think. You can't overachieve all the time. No. Well, I always say that um, Edith Wharton, who I think is a wonderful writer, wrote at least something like 25 books. Now, of those 25, probably 20 of them are mediocre. They're just not terribly good books. So what? You know, we have the five books that are great books. No, thank you, Edith Wharton. <laughs> now, you can't come out there every time and be spectacular. You can try, and you got to, you know, bust your ass every time out there. You don't slide. But it's not always going to be wonderful. And you don't get better and better and better and better and better until when you're 75, you're the novelist laureate of the world. It just doesn't work that way. <laughs> I, always, I love the quote of Eudora Welty. She said, every book teaches you the lessons necessary to write that book, which I have always loved. The bad news, of course, is that none of those lessons apply to the next book, you know, so you're always starting from scratch. What does your work day look like? Let's get basic. Uh, let's see. Uh, get the kids off to school around 8.45. Um, if I'm not teaching college, um, I will try to hit the desk around 9 o'clock, look at the pages that I, I did yesterday. Um, 
put the revisions into the computer, mess around with that for about an hour, um, and then go forward checking out the journal. I keep the journal of the book that I'm working on and see what I, my thoughts were before. If I've set up for a certain scene or if I'm in a certain scene, um, I'll try to complete that scene um, and move on and make my decisions about the next scene and how large the scene has to be, whether I want to render it fully, whether I want to just summarize it, to skip it. Um, so I'll make some of those very conscious decisions and then I'll set into the scene and deal with the characters. Um, I'll write for about four hours, then I'll revise for about two hours. Um, kids will start coming home. Um, I'll sort of put the stuff away for a while. Get dinner, eat dinner, help the kids with their homework. Uh, Trudy comes home. And then I'll go back and I'll look at what I wrote that day and I'll hack it up. Um, sometimes a lot. I mean, sometimes it's just like, Today's work didn't count. And other times you're like, wow, this is all going to stay. And then the next morning you find out that <laughs> that's wrong. Yeah. Um, and um, then I'll try not to think about it. You know, I'll read something else or watch TV. Um, and just before I go to bed, I'll just think about the scene that's going to happen next time and what my character's doing and how my character's feeling. Um, or sometimes if I'm having difficulty connecting with my character, I'll, I'll be my character for a little while. And, and go through the house as my character. So going through the house as Marjorie, obviously, was a lot of fun. Or a nudist, a nudist, that'd be good. Um, or, or say even as Larry, going through the house, or going through the day was very, very strange. I mean, trying to see the world through the eyes of, of someone who, who's still living somewhat with Vietnam. Um, and that's an exercise that, that always brings me a little bit closer, because your character will notice things in the world that you never would. So you do a journal, too. That's the first I've heard of that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, that's up. What's yeah. It, what, what nature does it take? What is its form? Um, usually sort of exhortations to myself to write better. <laughs> you know, you're screwing up. Or you better nail this. Or, you know, I think that scene needs to be larger or smaller. Um, or just any sort of notes, any little tiny kind of notes about decor. Mm -hmm. You know, like these lights that run along here. They're lights, the, the lights in an airplane. So if I had an airplane scene, I'd throw them in there have it start blinking off and on, or have the one in front of my character's foot going off and on. <laughs> yeah, just little stuff like that. Uh, I've allowed us a little time if you have questions from out there. Well, let me let me ask you a question since you're right. sort of grilling me. Too here. late, too late. We're uh, quick enough. How is it working with a character over several thousand pages? I mean, I can go deep into a character, but 500 pages and I'm gone. Uh. You know. Kinsey Milhone is the only character I've found that I can sustain for any length of time because her are us. Uh, but, but there are differences between us, and the thing I struggle with is keeping Sue Grafton out so that Kinsey Milhone can be there. And the trick, I think, especially with first person, is not to fall in love with the sound of your own voice and not to start thinking you're hot shit and not to start thinking you're anything. So um, I always think my job as a writer is to stay out of my own way and let the character come through and let the story tell me what I need to do next. Um, Sue Grafton has problems. Sue Grafton has ego, but the work does not. So early in the process, like around A, B, I would have to go back and read the early books to remember the sound of the voice. Now that isn't an issue for me. And now I feel like I'm pretty good at not getting too cute. Sometimes Kinsey, whoever she is, we channel her. Uh, she, she advises me to do things that are so tasteless. <laughs> and I go, oh, honey, we're not doing that. If you think it's funny, they won't, you know. So we have those little conversations. But the challenge to, for me is that I have to be alert to what's going on with me. I have to make sure I grow. I have to make sure I develop. And then just trust that she won't follow suit. For instance, I've, I've been lifting weights now for 15 months, year and a half. I'm going to make her do it. On. So in, in O, you'll see that she's starting to lift weights. You know, things like that. So there's a very bizarre relationship between the two of us. But she'll li outlive me, of course. <laughs> well, well, one thing in, in a lot of my fiction, the characters past will always surprise me. I'll oh. find out things about the character that I didn't quite know, say, in Chapter 2, and I find them out in Chapter 5. Are you still finding things oh, out yeah. now? Oh, yeah. I got to the end of F is for Fugitive, and I was looking for an image. I don't even know what I needed. And all of a sudden, up pops the 
that piece of that moment in Kinsey's life where the car wreck has occurred and she's five and she reaches around the edge of the seat to take her father's hand without realizing that he's dead. And I, I, until that moment, I had not known about that. So I still discover things about her. And that, again, part of the challenge is to keep digging, keep digging on all those characters, any recurring character. You can't just repeat the same sound bits from book to book. You need to keep going down and, and looking for new territory, interior territory. Deep, deeper inside. Yeah. Yeah. Laurie yeah. Laurie Moore, who was my teacher for a little while at Cornell, said there's there's three things you have to do as a writer. Start big, finish big, then the middle go as deep as you can. Ooh, and like that's that. it. And it's impossible advice, but you know <laughs> but it, so sounds, good. it sounds great. Now I saw a little timid hand, yeah. Oh, I myself have been through several therapists, not always wonderful, I'd like to report. I'll name names, too. Um, <laughs> is that something Kinsey is likely to do? Is that you know, they want her to get her a good haircut, for instance. But she's really happy. That one book where she had the crooked haircut and she just held her head like that. And I was like, what's the problem? Now it's even. So I'd like to say these books are about Kinsey's professional life. So people complain because she doesn't seem to have that many friends. I'm going, honey, you don't know what happens between books. She could be a hooker between books. <laughs> These books are about her life as a private investigator. So maybe she, she's never going to have therapy. She's never having a boob job. <laughs> never wearing a wonder bra. I can promise you these things. But, but again, that's, that's being true to the character. Yes, Kinsey true. is not someone who said, you know, I really should go to the therapist. Yeah. And she'd never say centered. that. She would never say that. <laughs> she is centered, right? This chick is centered. She's going to say, I'm going to pay someone to tell me what's wrong with me? <laughs> person allowing your your character to ramble on a little bit to find out who they are and can you do that early on without moving the story forward well not no not on a final draft of course not but usually when I go back in the first three or four chapters are the ones that get the heavy heavy blue lines on them that get torn apart and get sharper and sharper uh, but you don't want to be too tight early on or else your pacing is going to be sort of accelerated early on and then you're going to slow down in the middle too much for the reader you know, one of my complaints about your manuscripts when I read them is that somebody has told you, and apparently you've believed it, that, man, you have to get in there, get that story moving, get that story moving. Out of the gate. Yeah, so, I mean, I'm sitting there like I'm hyperventilating while your character's galloping down, and it becomes comical. So your character's moving so fast, boom, 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 bam. Or, or <laughs> now, giving, giving the big, huge hook, you know, yeah. like in the, it's like, you know, a fighter going out and throwing their best punch for the yeah. first punch. Out. Well, the other thing that people have been told, apparently, I can only guess from the manuscripts I read, is like you have to have this prologue. Now, this is especially in the mystery field. The prologue is full of blood and snot and death and biting dogs. Then, end of prologue, then begins the dullest first chapter of the planet. <laughs> and I'm going, what is the purpose of this uh, little hairball at the front? Well, it's, it's from Hollywood. Yeah. In Hollywood, you have... You have the action sequence, or the, the death, or the explosion, then you run your titles, you know? Right, right. And then the actual thing starts. Right. Quit doing that. I beg you to quit doing that. You know, yes. Well, it can be fun, though. <laughs> the question is how tight do we try to get our beginning chapters before we move on? You answer oh, that. Um, so that they can they can uh, draw blood, definitely as sharp as you can possibly get. I write from sentence to sentence. I don't write in big big blocks. I make sure that the sentence is sharp and balanced and has wicked assonance in it, and you know is perfect. Um, and then I move on. And a sentence is the the unit of commerce, I think, in writing. 
No, my strategy is different, though. I seduce, you see. I, I, it's like, let me just take you in here. Honey, you just come with me. I'm going to tell you something. And it's like, come here. I want to tell you something. And I trust, and I think you should each trust, that if you are writing the book that you are meant to write, that people are naturally interested. They paid the money. They're on your side. And so some, from my perspective, you can give yourself at least the illusion of leisure. This is storytelling. We are all kids. You're our mom. We, yeah, this is bedtime. Help me out here. You know, I am with you, and I want to hear what you have to say. So don't feel like you have to jump up and take me by the throat. You know, just don't jump on me. Just I'm, I'm here. I'm with you. So my advice, well, I do believe it has to be efficient and crisp. It can still feel like a sort of lullaby. Well, I, I like to have a little bit of danger in the actual language because... In my books, the language is, and the technical aspects are a performance. You know, can he actually pull this off? You know, this thing's going to get too brittle or pitch too high. Or mm. I want to take it as far as I can go and get to that line and, and make you think, oh, there's, he can't do worse than that, and then go another <laughs> step and another step and have him going, oh, wow, you know, amazing. Uh, Cormac McCarthy seems that way to me. Um, you know, he's always challenging you to, to close the book. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. and so it, it's a gothic sort of sensibility, I think, to pile up the big thing. Yeah. Oh, what is my writing day like? I Lately, I've been getting up at 5.53. I do. I, it used to be 5.42, but I'm really sleeping in. Uh, I walk three miles with my friend Florence, which I've been doing now for um, years, jogged for many years, but walking the last, we're getting older, you know. And uh, I shower, have breakfast, I hit my desk at 9, work till about 11.30, break for lunch briefly, go back to work till about 2 or 2.30, and then I exercise again. Because writers are the people whose butts keep getting wider and wider and wider. <laughs> so I'm always trying to get that puppy back where it's supposed to be. Um, and then I eat, I mean, I'm in bed at this pitiful early hour and uh, start all over again the next day. And I work seven days a week, especially when I'm on a deadline, unless Stuart owns it. Do you work seven days a week? Uh, yeah, when I'm hot, yeah. I work seven days a week sometimes long hours at it. Yeah. Um, but it's rare that I'm too hot. Usually it's just <laughs> ka-chunk, ka-chunk, a few pages a day, yeah, a few pages yeah. a day. Yeah, you and I are both at the school, two pages a day, two pages a day. Don't get into this 10-page stuff because you won't be able to keep it up. Well, sometimes towards the end, yeah. I get real just blazing, and they start coming, you know, six, seven, eight pages a day, and you're like, this, you know, I just can't possibly keep this pace up. And then you do, and you finish, and you're like, oh, that's crap. <laughs> it's absolute crap. You should have been doing two pages a day. <laughs> you got one? Yes, sir. Uh, he says that he's talking about the, the fact that the shadow plays such a part in my work, and he's asking if I use my dreams. I do some. If I have a dream that scares me, I always. If I wake up, I'm analyzing to think, why was that so frightening? Because being afraid is a wonderful thing for a suspense writer. And so I'm always like, anything that scares me, I, I just clock it, check it physically. Where is fear in my body? And what has stimulated that, you know, adrenaline? Yeah, yeah. So I, but I don't in any kind of woo-woo way. Woo -woo my way? dreams are garbage, I promise. It's just house cleaning. Well, you use everything. Yeah, right? yeah. You use everything. Like those, those credit cards that someone left there. <laughs> and there's a lot of stories there. Yes, ma'am. Oh, she's asking what I thought of G.S. for Grafton. Now, it's the first time I ever felt understood. These two women from the University of South Carolina wrote this book. It is a biography of Kinsey Milhone, which I deeply resent, as nobody has done a biography of me. <laughs> but uh, we, I read a hundred pages of that book, which was proposed to my publisher, Henry Holt, and we only kind of gave him the go-ahead thinking to control the material. I read this stuff, and I thought, that's right. That's what I'm doing. And so for me, it's re I felt very visible. Um, and I gave them as much help. They, I gave them hunks in my journal. I gave them anything they wanted. And they really, I think, rendered a very clear portrait of what I'm doing. It'll tell you more about Kenzie Milhone than you ever hope to know. But good for them. Yes, ma'am. Sir. Oh. Sir. Do you have, do you have a 
Uh, he's asking if I have a non-mystery novel. I don't know, and I don't need to know till the year 2015. <laughs> Surely something will occur to me by then. Yes, ma'am? Oh. She's asking what his day looks like when he has to teach. Um, well, usually I only teach two classes a day. Um, so I'll go into the office at the university, and I'll... I've already prepped the classes the night before, and then I'll go in and take care of office stuff and office email and academic junk. And um, teach class, have break, do conferences with students for about two hours, one-on-one, -on -one. Um, maybe get something to eat, maybe not. Teach the other class, um, finish up with any other sort of academic junk that I have, last conferences, get in the car, commute for an hour, and go home, eat dinner, and watch TV. That's my writing day. <laughs> But, hey, it's a job. You know, you, you've got to give yourself to the job. Otherwise, you're not doing your students right. And they're writers, and they demand the attention that you would demand from your readers. And they deserve that attention. You're only as good as you are on your worst days. Oh, that's scary. She's asking about what we do on a bad day. I always say I only have writer's block about once a day. <laughs> I do. Every day I resist. Every day I have writer's block. And, yes, you sit. And You grind it. Yeah. Or you just sit. Who is it who said, it, it was, who said at his desk, he, his rule for himself used to be you don't have to write, but you can't do anything else. Yeah. So, you know, think about that. It may have been Conrad. Yeah. Right. Conrad hated going to the desk. But. And you can tell, he only wrote 30 books. You know. <laughs> oh. uh, this is the uh, Oklahoma City AAA baseball team, the 89ers. <laughs> there, and I'm, I'm a proud Oklahoma and Hokie. Yeah, Linda. Yeah. She's asking if I ever feel trapped. Not lately. Uh, there were many years when I thought, why didn't I keep my big mouth shut? But now I, it's, now it, it really feels like a marathon. It is 26 books, it's 26 miles, and it's what gives shape and meaning to my life. And I think of it as my spiritual journey. It is just mine to do. Um, I would be stoned to death if I stopped anywhere short of Z, I think, although I will not do it if I don't feel I'm writing well. If I thought I was cheating, I would do something else if anyone would have me. So if you have job applications, you want to, I really, I, want, I need the security. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. When ego is chatting? Shattered. Shattered. When your ego is shattered. Oh, that's good. See, ego shattered is perfect. Ego shattered is what you want to do. See, I promise you, because ego is what gets in your way as a writer. Because ego is what thinks it's in charge. Ego is worried about agents. Ego can't wait to get published. That is such horseshit. You've got to get ego out of the way. Because when you sit at your desk, what you want is quiet. You don't want a big ego. You want an ego is a writer's worst nightmare. So shattered ego is perfect because up from that quiet can come the piece of you that will do the right job. So that is a gift, honestly. That is a gift when your ego has been shattered. And if you have disappointments and you take rejection, just consider that a gift. It is just the world's way of saying, sit there some more. It, you know, it, it, the struggle is what teaches us. The, the, the feet is what teaches us. And it's about getting back on your feet. But Ego is, you've got to get that out of your life. Just quit worrying about that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, she's asking why I disguise Santa Barbara. Well, I do it because I happen to be the goddess of Santa Teresa, and I can, 
I can make it any way I want, and I never get letters telling me I did it wrong because I made it up. Uh, Lompoc I didn't think would be important to me, so I tossed that in. Now I think, shoot, now that connects back up to her history, so I'm kicking my family for that. But in the main, it's to keep from getting sued. You know, and so far I have been sued, so apparently it's working. That's pretty good. Yeah. I got sued four times for Speed Queen. So. <laughs> See? Yes. Yeah, Mr. King. Me? Moi? Probably J is for judgment. Just because I learned so much, and for me it was really a turning point. That was just an important book. In terms of method? Yes. Rather than final product? No, right? final product. Too. Both? Well, because it's shadow written. Toward the end of that book, Shadow said to me one day, I uh, literally, I was getting toward the end of the book, Shadow said to me, in the dead of night, you have never understood what this book is about, so now I'm going to tell you. And she showed me what the story really was. And it was such an amazing moment. For me, shadow often comes in the dead of night. It's when ego and left brain are down for the count. And your, your dream self, your child self comes out. So often, shadow wakes me up and she'll say the simplest things. She says, don't forget it's raining. And I think, shoot, in the narrative it's raining. I haven't mentioned that. It's just like a little hint of something. And I take that to my desk the next day, and it turns out to be the door into that piece of writing. So that's, that's just the way I work. And I think when you're cooking on a book and when you're really absorbed in what you're doing, any right brain activity, driving, gardening, doing dishes, scrubbing toilet bowls, that's why women are so creative. We have lots of opportunities for right brain to come forward. Uh, those activities free you up. Left brain gets bored, and right brain can bring you roses. How are we doing for time? Are we okay for time? Okay. Two more questions. Yes. Yeah. Uh, just as uh, using Stephen King in, in the Speed Queen, um, he's obviously a public figure and a major part of all, our culture. Um, and so I thought, well, he's pretty much fair game there. Um, oh, no, no. Yeah, yeah, he's one of the ones who sued me. But, uh, yeah, and the Sonic uh, Corporation. Do you know the Sonic restaurants out here? Yeah, they sued me too. So the paperback version doesn't have the Sonic restaurants in them. Um, Led Zeppelin sued me um, because they own the rights to the uh, pair of eyes on the paperback. Um, they own the rights to that photo in perpetuity. Um, How you doing on the Lost them all. Lost them all because uh, Doubleday, my former publisher, uh, didn't, didn't stand up for me in any of them. So they just folded. Because monetarily, business-wise, it was a good decision for them. Artistically, it was sort of an abnegation of duty. But they're not in the business for art. No, no. They, we just pulled all the stuff out of the book. They, they basically silenced or censored the book with big cash money. But hey, it's the real world. You know, <laughs> live with it. All right, we'll take one more question. asking about what happens if you hypothetically have this hypothetical agent and editor and you're getting feedback that doesn't ring true to you, but you have an opportunity to possibly publish. That's a tricky one. Oh, I don't think so. Oh, see? Good. <laughs> Your name's going to be on that book, not right. the editor. And that book, if it's published at all well, it's going to be around for a while. So why would you want someone else's sort of messings around with it that don't feel right to you in that book? You'll have to live with that book. 
I'd say, look, I don't, I don't agree with your changes here, and here's why. Here's, here's my logic and the internal logic of the book that refutes that sort of argument. And if they say, you know, well, I don't like that, then say, well, I'm gone. Now, and the difference is, especially if you haven't been paid and you don't have a contract. You do it on spec anyway. Yeah, I only listen to the people who are paying me money. Otherwise, it's just anybody's opinion. You know, your mother could be telling you something. Who cares? So I would be true to your intuition on that. I think you're, you're better off in the, in the long run. Well, we'd like to thank you for your yes. attention. Thanks for coming out. And um, thank you very much to the audience. I've been asked to remind you that the author's books are on sale um, out in the lobby, and they'll be signing them out there. So um, It's Father's Day, and I have two kids, so do the right thing. <laughs>